Spirit. Open our hearts this morning. Pour into it your heart, your truth, your grace. God, we love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Good morning, saints. Would you stay standing, if you may, for the reading of God's Word? Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught in human wisdom, but by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord, so has to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. As we're getting started here, I just wanted to do a quick check. Are there, are there any hunters in the room? Are there some of you that uh, go out? I see a few hands, a, a couple around. I uh, have, uh, was hunting with my dad many, many, many years ago, even when I was too young to carry a rifle, but I would like hold on to his back pocket as we ran up and down the mountains of New Mexico, and he was explaining to me the way of the deer. And apparently this is something that uh, herds of deer do. There's like the big buck that like runs the herd and they come to a clearing or something. And uh, before sort of figuring out if, you know, what the dangers are, that buck makes the, the rest of the herd run across the clearing to find out if anything bad is gonna happen. And then if no disasters occur, then, then that buck follows across himself. Having said that, I just want to thank Tim for the opportunity to preach this morning on the first day <laughs> in this particular venue. While we figure out everything that's going right and perhaps everything that might be going wrong today, but I think we've got it figured out and I think that things are going to go fine. And the definition of fine is actually pretty broad. I've worshipped with Christians in Africa who meet under a tree right and i've worshiped in glorious cathedrals that have been there for centuries with impressive glass and music and we've worshiped in all kinds of different contexts and all kinds of places and so have we 
And the thing that marks those moments and makes those times valuable is not necessarily the particular surroundings, but the presence of the people and the Spirit of God. And so welcome to the assembly of God's people this morning. We actually form a temple, the Lord says, when we come together in worship and God dwells among us and receives our glory. So we're grateful for that. You might have heard that there are two kinds of people in the world, those who divide people up into kinds and those who don't. I guess I'm one of those that divides people up into kinds. So let's think about a couple of divisions. How about this? There are one zero kinds of people in the world, those who understand binary and those who don't. Now, some of you get it because you are those who understand binary and some of you don't because you don't understand binary. Now, just briefly for those binary folks who might feel like sometimes in the church that your world and the world of the church doesn't necessarily interact and, and intersect and you're kind of uh, computer and techie and mathy and sciencey and geeky and all those kinds of things. I just want you to hear this morning, you are seen you are heard, you are understood. All right, how about this? There are two kinds of people in the world, those who are good at math, those who are good at grammar, and those who ain't no good at neither. <laughs> that sound a little more familiar? Now, as we think about the text before us this morning, I think that Paul is saying here, there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who are natural, those who are spiritual, and the spiritual people who don't act like it. All right, so there are two kinds of people in the world, the natural and the spiritual. I think if Paul could communicate to us in a single sentence today, it would probably be something like this. All saints are spiritual. So let's act like it. All right. I think that's what we'll see as we come to the text before us this morning. So I called you saints. That means that we are sanctified and that we are made holy. And that is a work of the Spirit. And so the call to us is to live in a way that's consistent with that. So the two kinds of people that we want to consider, first of all, those who are natural, the natural ones, as Paul calls them in this text. There's maybe a couple of things that we might observe about the natural ones. One thing Paul says about those folks in verse 8 is that none of the rulers of this age understood these things, because if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. One of the things that people do in their natural human condition, which is a position of alienation and separation from God, unsurprisingly, they live lives that are separated and alien from God. They don't actively support the will of God. They might even actively oppose the work or the will of God. Natural people act naturally. 
And our natural condition, apart from the gracious work of God, is to rebel and to oppose God and his purposes and his will. So one thing just worth noting, maybe just as an aside, is it really shouldn't surprise us if those who do not know God act like they don't know God. All right? So that's one thing that people do by nature is behave in ways that are inconsistent with God's will and God's purposes. But more deeply than this, if we look at verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they're folly to him and he doesn't understand them because they require spiritual discernment. The natural person doesn't even understand the things of the Spirit of God, does not even understand what God is calling his people to in terms of how we should live and how we should think. There's so much about your life as a Christian that you're probably well aware does not make any sense to people who don't know and love God. I mean, the fact that you get up early on a Sunday morning and you waste half your day sitting here with all these people doesn't make sense given all the other alternatives that you might choose to do this morning. The fact that you structure your life around God's priorities in terms of your time and your finances and your investment in relationships. The fact that you allocate precious resources in those categories doesn't make sense to the one who by nature doesn't know and is alienated from God. Later in this service, we'll come to the Lord's table together. This is one of the things that Paul very specifically says, does not make any sense to those who don't know the Lord. There's so much about what believers do, what Christians do, that feels and actually is strange and alien and other to the one who by nature doesn't know and walk with the Lord. Now that's not Paul's focus in this text. He is writing, as he said at the beginning of this epistle, to the saints who are in Corinth, to those who know and love God and are called into fellowship with God and to one another. And so when Paul mentions the natural ones, it's only so that he has something of a contrast so he can turn to what he really wants to address, which is those who are spiritual. Now, we see here at the beginning of the text, among the mature, we do impart wisdom, but it's not a wisdom of this age. So Paul now is turning from those who are natural and turning now to the mature or the spiritual or the saints. It's the same group of people that he is seeking to address. And the Greek culture in this context was always seeking after some sort of secret, some sort of shortcut, some sort of elusive mystery that could set you apart and equip you for some kind of success. If you could have the right kind of education, then you could be effective debating in court or 
in the public square. If you had the right kind of knowledge, then you could be successful in your business and in your relationships. If you had the right kind of wealth, well, is there really a wrong kind? If you had enough wealth, then you could purchase your way through in a kind of powerful way, or if you had some sort of position. So the secret to successful living is to find some key that will enable you to thrive. That's not too, un, too unlike our own time. If I look at my Facebook feed or my Google search algorithm, I continue to get links for things like how to lose weight without diet or exercise. Well, that would be a powerful secret. How to get everyone to agree with you and to win every argument. That would be useful. Secret after secret is offered to us, and what we're looking for is a shortcut that would allow us, if we just had a, an edge on everybody else, if we just had some kind of mystery secret that set us apart, that would, that would give us a leg up in all of life's goals and objectives. And so Paul's been busy saying, that is all wasted effort, dead ends, no such things are out there. I'm going to preach to you Christ and him crucified. I'm not going to appeal to any of these secret methodologies of wisdom or flattery or power or any such things. But then here he employs a bit of irony and he says, actually, I do have a bit of a secret here in verse 7. We do impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. And that secret is the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer and in the life of the church community. That's why he's writing to this group which is spiritual. Now the reason he says it's not a secret is because we are openly proclaiming it. That when you come to Christ, you enter into a new relationship with God through the Spirit and it has all of those effects of giving you the ability to navigate life well and successfully and with understanding and with wisdom. But it's not like these Greek mystery religions, which perhaps are a bit like certain fraternal organizations where you have to like go into a secret chamber and get initiated into certain practices and slogans and behaviors and then swear on your life's blood that you'll never, ever, ever tell anybody about this and that you'll sort of you know, have like a secret code or something like that. This was prevalent among the Greeks. They, these mystery religions flourished all over the places and so everyone was an outsider but us because we are the elite who take part in this mysterious practice what paul is doing here is he's he's letting the cat out of the bag and he's proclaiming openly here's the secret the presence of the holy spirit in the life of the believer in verses 11 and 12 we read this who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of the person which is in him? So it is that no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. So the first thing that those who are spiritual need to understand by contrast to the natural man is that if you are a believer, if you are a saint, if you are a follower of Jesus, then you have received 
the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God indwells you. Now, one of my responsibilities around here is to contribute to what we call theological formation. We want people to think rightly and theologically, biblically about themselves and the world. And so here's, here's a little theological insight that I want you to grab onto. All Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God himself, dwells inside of you. Have a, have a sense of this. Paul, later on in this book, in two different contexts, will use temple imagery to talk about the presence of the Spirit. He'll say that when the church assembles together, Peter says that we come together as living stones and we construct a building, but Paul says when the church is together, God and the person of the Holy Spirit dwells among us. There's a temple of the Spirit. But then he applies it to individuals. He says, you, individually, your body, you're a temple. Now, temples, some of you were with us last Sunday night. We looked at some temples. If you go to Athens, the Parthenon, the, the, the famous temple on top of the Acropolis, that's where the goddess Athena lived. That's where that's Athena's house. You go to the Parthenon to visit Athena. You're in the presence of Athena when you're at the Parthenon. When you're in Corinth and meat is being sacrificed to idols at the temple of Apollo, that is where Apollo resides. You can go and visit Apollo. You're in the presence of Apollo when you're at the temple of Apollo. You know what Paul says about people who are in your presence? They are in the presence of the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the reason that is true is because God takes up residence in you. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is what it is to be a saint, to be spiritual. It is literally to be in the Spirit and the Spirit in us. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Furthermore, if you are a spiritual person, then God has decreed unimaginable things for us. We read in verse 7, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Other translations actually use the word predestined, which makes certain people nervous, and you don't want to use the word predestined. But let me, let's just say this for now. Let's stop thinking or worrying so much about the pre part, and let's think about the destiny part. All right? God has plans for you. God has plans for us that we would walk in and by the Spirit and unimaginable, unforeseeable, amazing things he has laid out for those he loves. When Paul describes the work of the Holy Spirit, the, the purpose of God in Romans, he says that he has predestined us to be con con conformed to the image of Jesus. And so the Holy Spirit of God is working in your life to make you more like Jesus. That is your destiny. That is your goal. That's where you're going. That is not like the natural man, the one who is indwelt 
by the Spirit. Further in the text in verse 9, what it's written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, God has prepared for those who love him. So a few weeks ago, we had a baby shower for my middle daughter due with their first child and my son-in-law, her husband. This was what they call a couple's shower. Have you heard of such things? So men and women come together for this event and talk about mystery religions. Talk about secret practices and arcane activities that are only wondered at from outsiders. We were introduced into the secrets of how baby showers work. And fellas, like if you get the chance, or if you're invited to a couple shower, I just encourage you, don't resist it because the key word, food. There's a lot of food, right? And it's pretty good. So say yes to those couples, showers, invitations. But I was invited to give something of a devotional at this event. Uh, and so I thought about interpreting this as, hey, I've been invited to instruct my daughter and her husband as to how to raise my grandchildren. I have ideas. I ended up not going that way, maybe for a couple of reasons. One, I figured my daughter has seen me parent for over 20 years. And so anything that's really important to me in terms of parenting, she's probably had some firsthand experience of, and there's really nothing I could say that would add much to that. And if I started saying things that didn't line up with what I had done for 20 years, then maybe it would just look like hypocrisy. And so I really didn't want to go down that road either. So instead I came to this verse and said, to a couple on the verge of beginning the journey of parenting. And maybe that applies to some folks in here, but for a lot of folks, maybe not so much, right? But there's a, there's a general sort of thing here about your relationships with the children you already have, or your friends and coworkers, or your aging parents, or your um, workplace, or uh, your own community around. There's, there's something I want you to hear about all of those contexts, about this context as a church in Northwest Indiana, that for we who are spiritual, we who are indwelt by the Spirit of God, what's that going to be like? Here's the answer. What no eye has seen, nor has ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, God is prepared for those who love him. Think about it for those of you who have parented. Remember those early days. And if you've completed that, I keep saying 20 years. My wife will remind me later, we parented for over 30 years. So just to clarify, uh, but so looking back over those last 30 years, if I had known 30 something years ago, everything that would be included in all those years of raising children, it would have been overwhelming, frightening, intimidating, paralyzing, and it would have ruined a lot of surprises. And instead, when you start that path of parenting, 
know this. What you haven't seen, what you haven't heard, what you have not even imagined, God has prepared for those who love him. Now, on the one hand, you might think, that sounds fantastic. I just want to tell you, it is fantastic. There are amazingly great things that happen when you parent in the will of God. There are amazingly great things that happen when you marry in the will of God, when you work in the workplace, when you uh, serve in the church, when, when you live here. There are amazingly great things that happen when you are walking by the Spirit in those contexts. But this text isn't restricted to just those amazingly great things that happen. It also includes the really hard, unanticipated surprises that come up along the way. And hear this as well. These are things that you did not imagine, that had not entered into your heart, but that God prepared for those who love him. Because his intent is to conform us to the image of Jesus. And so sometimes that work of the Spirit is to lift us up and bear us even more closely to Christ-likeness and to faithfulness and to growing in our love and knowledge of who the Lord is and what it is to walk with him carefully. Sometimes what the work of the Spirit in our lives is, is to redirect us away from error or from pride or from rebellion or to knock off the things that stand in the way of us conforming to the person of Jesus. And so as those who are spiritual and indwelt by the Spirit, know this, the person of God who dwells within you is actively working within you to make you holy and to conform you to the person of Jesus. The Spirit who indwells this church is actively working within us to make us holy and to conform us collectively into the image of Jesus. First day in here, eight months-ish to follow. We can't even imagine, even in that narrow restriction, the sorts of things that might be happening over the last several months or the things that are going on in other parts of our life that have nothing to do with where I'm sitting in an auditorium worshiping and praying, right? But in this season, God is going to be faithful to his will and his purpose. He's going to work in your life. He's going to work in our lives to conform us to holiness, reflecting the will and the person of the Spirit. So we're indwelt by the Spirit. God has decreed unimaginable things for those who love him. And then thirdly, the spiritual person has a capacity for evaluation, for discernment, for judgment. And the result of that is alignment with the mind of God. We see this here in verse 13. We impart these things in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. 
Dropping down to verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. Now there's about 20 words in Greek for judge. The one here is like interrogation or cross-examination. It's to examine very closely, but to come to a wise conclusion at the end of that interrogation. And so one of the effects of being indwelt by the Spirit, and as Paul says here, having the mind of Christ, is that we, you saints, have the capacity to think carefully, to judge closely, not a critical condemning judgment, but an evaluation that comes to a conclusion of wisdom. Now, this should encourage you in the midst of all kinds of challenges and potential conflict and division and uh, issues to be resolved down the road that the Holy Spirit of God within us, within you, gives you the capacity to judge and live wisely and rightly in the face of these challenges. Let me give you a couple of biblical examples. One comes up in Acts chapter 6, where um, because the Jewish community is divided a little bit along cultural lines, you got the people who it's important that they look and live like Jews, and the people that are Jewish but sort of are culturally engaged, and maybe they look and live like Greeks and Romans. Uh, the issue comes up then, a complaint by the Hellenists, because the Hebrew um, were, the Hebrew widows were being privileged and the Hellenistic widows were being neglected in the distribution of food, right? There were these folks with need and so this complaint comes to the disciples, what are you going to do about it? And here's the solution of the disciples. They summoned them, the, the apostles said it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute full of the spirit and wisdom, and will appoint them to this duty. And that's what they did, right? The apostles didn't decide how they were going to handle distribution of food to Hellenic and Hebraic widows. They said, we have among us people with wisdom and spirit-filled lives. We recognize that. We're going to discuss the issue. We're going to give them the authority and the responsibility to make these decisions and to execute them. And what was the result of this? The word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And even some of the priests came to faith in that kind of context. So I call this an example of something like spirit-filled people with the capacity for interrogation resulting in wise judgment, saying, here's an important issue, but there's not necessarily a single right answer to the question about how we're going to handle food distribution. You know what we're going to do? We're going to find some wise people. We're going to give them the responsibility. We're going to trust them to execute the responsibility, and we're going to move on, right? That's the category of important but not uniquely critical, right? 
yeah, we got to make those decisions. Maybe a much more trivial example might be something like, what color should the new chairs be? You might have opinions about that. It should be appropriate for you to share your opinions. At a certain point, wise people are going to be given the responsibility to make some decisions. And everybody else is going to say, we trusted you with that. Thank you for your service. We're going to focus on the word of God and prayer, and we're going to keep going here. And perhaps we'll see um, the number of disciples being multiplied greatly as we go down that road. Another event in the life of the early church involves, again, a controversy around growth of the church. As Paul and um, Barnabas were preaching the gospel, a really weird thing happened. Not only were Jewish people believing in Jesus as Messiah, but sometimes these Gentile pagan people started believing in Jesus as Messiah. And so this question arose, what are we going to do with these people? Do they have to become Jewish in order to become Christians? Or is there like a different on-ramp for them? So we read in Acts 15, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. That's a little bit of understatement, right? No small dissension and debate. Um, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem uh, to bring this question to the apostles and the elders. And skipping down to verse 12 in Acts 15, all the assembly fell silent. They listened to Paul and Barnabas as they related the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, now brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how the word of God visited the Gentiles to take them in and to create a people for his own name. In verse 19, therefore my judgment is, Sound familiar? My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and sexual immorality and from what's been strangled. And there we go. So in the early church, there was a different kind of issue, a critical theological issue that deserved much dissension and debate, discussion, hashing it through, not agreeing. That's not a threat to spirit-filled people because we have the mind of Christ. We have this spirit-given capacity to interrogate ideas, to think things through, to ask all the hard questions, to wrestle with all the alternatives and the possibilities. And then once having done so, to settle the issue theologically and say, this is a gospel issue of great significance. This is what it means to follow God faithfully in his word and among his people. In this judgment, here's what we need to do. The thing I want you to hear is that there's not a problem with dissension or debate or discussion. Sometimes that reveals important issues where maybe the exact outcome doesn't matter Let's trust some people to make good decisions that are acceptable, and we'll just all live with it. Other times, critical theological issues, they're going to like really wrestle with, and we're going to take a stand on it. And Paul is saying that the spiritual ones, which is the saints, all of us, have the capacity 
to work through debate and disagreement and come to peaceful and just resolutions. And if the issue is of theological importance, we come to one mind. If the issue is of opinion and practicality, then it doesn't matter which opinion or practical outcome, and we can accept a decision even that's different from our own preferences. This is what we see in the text. And what Paul wants to say is the thing that makes this possible is the Holy Spirit who indwells us, that we are not natural, we're spiritual, and ultimately that we are marked by that we have the mind of Christ. Uh, Paul says, nobody can question God or understand God except the Spirit of God within him. That kind of sounds like the story of Job, right? When Job starts, you know, God, you know, what are you doing and why are you doing this? And, and God basically comes to Job and says, you're not God, hush up, be silent. But Paul says something different to the church here. He says that those who are spiritual, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, have the mind of Christ. You have a resource Job lacked. Job was not permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. This is what Jesus does in sending the Spirit to the church and indwelling us. Do you realize the great Old Testament saint of Job or David or Solomon lacked the permanent indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, which you have. And because of this, you have the mind of Christ. This would be a great place to stop, right, on such an encouraging note. We should sing, may the mind of Christ my Savior, uh, and, and sort of carry on. But Unfortunately, that's not where Paul stops, and so we can't quite stop yet. So we need to carry on in the text. Some of these things might be hard to say or hard to hear. If so, I'm happy to talk to you, but my main question is, is it aligning with the text? So as we take up some of these things, Paul then continues on to the Corinthians, and he says, but look, brothers, in, verse, in chapter 3, I could not address you as spiritual people but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready. You're still of the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? When one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, aren't you being merely human? Now, we probably have an idea what it is to be an immature Christian. Paul actually uses the word infant. To call somebody an infant or infantile, that's a pretty offensive expression, especially if you view yourself as mature and seasoned and wise, as no doubt some of these Corinthians would have. And yet Paul writes to them and says, I can't treat you like mature men. I have to treat you like infants. They're acting like mere men. They are behaving less than what they are. When Paul writes to the Galatians, he takes up this question 
of what it is to be fleshly instead of spiritual. And we know these categories, right? We know what it is to be a not spiritual person. We know what it is to be uh, resisting the spirit of God within you. We can list the sins that mark you out as not faithfully following Jesus, right? We're going to talk about stuff like sexual immorality, We're going to talk about stuff like drunkenness or intoxication. We might even be so bold as to talk about things like gluttony, right? Um, Those are the things we know are out of alignment with the will of God, and certainly they are. When Paul writes in um, Galatians chapter 5, he says this. Now listen for those words, right? Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And if Paul wants to tear into the Corinthians, he's got plenty of resources for doing so just on that list, right? sexual immorality. There was such perversity in the Corinthian church that there was a man who was now living with his mother-in-law in an inappropriate relationship. There were people that were coming to the Lord's table and getting drunk on the communion wine. Drunkenness in the church. There was even gluttony It was like this love feast was a potluck where you brought food from home, but you didn't share. And so some people would have a lot and some people would go hungry. And that's where Paul says, eat at home, right? So if Paul wants to tear into the Corinthians for those big sins of sexuality and drunkenness and uh, gluttony, he's got plenty of opportunity to do so and he will take it up a little bit later on. But when you look at the text in front of us, Paul turns to other things on that same list in Galatians 5 to says, here's why you are infants. Here's why you're behaving like mere men, not because of the sensuality, not because of the drunkenness. Here's the stuff Paul wants to bring up. He says, there is, while you are uh, jealousy and strife and divisions among you, Infants, not acting like those who are spiritual. So certainly, if we have instances of sexual immorality in the church, that's a pastoral concern, and we're going to reach out and try to come alongside and address those things. If we have people struggling with addiction and intoxication, we're going to come alongside, we're going to address it, we're going to try to set things right. But Paul here says to the church, Here's some issues in a church which are markers of immaturity, jealousy, strife, and division, issues that have come up a couple of times along the way. And so we may view ourselves as mature. Paul gives us some tests here, right? If you find yourself saying things like, why does that person always get asked to sing and I never do? That sounds like jealousy, doesn't it? If our community is marked in the next several months by the kind of political strife that's going to mark the natural man 
it's going to sound like, it's going to look like we're not living by the Spirit. We're infants in our behavior. If we view ourselves and practice as divisions, then Paul's going to say, aren't you acting like mere men? You know, we're in this room. For some of you, this is old home week. You worshiped for years in here, back in the sacred ground days, right? Some of you, as a matter of principle or otherwise, you never came in here, right? You know, I am of the worship center. I am of sacred ground. And I just kind of just, those are important seasons in Liberty's past. Those have nothing to do with Liberty's present and future. And so if you think of yourself as I am of sacred ground or I am of the worship center or I am of this or I am of that, as Paul says, aren't you behaving like mere men? So this is a, this is a challenge and a test for our community as we seek to live a truly maturing, spirit-filled life going forward. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. God has prepared amazing and unthinkable things for us, some of which might be worthy of great celebration, some of which might be tremendous trials for us and for individuals. God has given us the capacity for wise, discerning, respectful engagement with one another, resulting ultimately in unified judgment because we have the singular mind of Christ as those indwelt by the Spirit. And the test of a person's maturity, the test of a church's maturity, is not measured by age or history or chronology. It's measured by conformity to the Holy Spirit of God within us. May this be true of us. Let's pray. Lord, you have prepared unthinkable things for us individually and collectively in the weeks and months, and we anticipate years ahead. Oh, we submit ourselves to your will and your purposes. We uh, are grateful for the great gift of the Spirit to us to guide us into truth. We're thankful for the men and women, older and younger, children around us who make up this unique assembly of your people who bear your name and witness and worship faithfully in this community and at this time and place. Might this be a beautiful expression of your glory and our unity that the world might see and marvel at the great work and great presence of God in this place and in this people we ask in Jesus' name, amen.